Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. It's spring cleaning. This is chapter three of me answering the patron emails. I have a long list here. This is not going to be a patron-only episode. I feel like I've had way too many of those recently, so let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This first email is about anger and anger management. It's from patron Ashley. She writes, have you ever done an episode on anger issues? I feel like, I f- I feel like difficulties with anger are an issue that is not given enough compassion in the psychological community. It'd be great to have an episode that ex- that includes tips for those who struggle with disproportionate anger, how to de- how to de-escalate oneself, and so forth. It would also be good to have tips for those who are around someone with anger issues, like a parent or friend or partner, etc. End of email. Good. So the first thing I'll say is that anger is a very complicated topic. Uh, yeah, Ashley, you're mainly talking about what I might call like unjustified anger or unhealthy anger or something. But just to broaden it out a little bit, anger is an extremely complicated thing. Um, We often equate it with aggression or rage or annoying people who get angry or something. But anger is a wonderful emotion, like any any of the emotions, like fear, sadness, or joy, or love. It's all what we do with it, right? Do we, do we allow ourselves to be angry when in a healthy way? You know, what does healthy anger exactly look like? Are we supposed to let go of our anger? Uh, I would say not usually. And if anything, most of my clients, I spend a lot of time trying to get them to express their anger rather than suppressing it. Vast majority of people in our society, even those people with quote-unquote anger problems, have been shamed so much due from for all emotions, particularly anger, and they have a very weird relationship with anger, so they don't they don't express it. I love anger. I, I've I've come to really, really love it. You know, people who listen to the podcast know when I get angry and I, I appreciate it. Now, there are times when I, it's not healthy, even on the podcast. Sometimes I will discount Umberto or something. That's probably the most obvious example that I can think of. And yeah, I'm hot under the collar. I'm getting into it. I feel hurt or I feel unheard or I feel discounted and I'm, and I'm lashing out and I'm trying to overpower or something. And yeah, so those moments, it's not great. But the rest of the time, I would say just a rough estimate, 95% of the time I'm expressing anger on this podcast, I feel like it's a healthy expression I'm I'm getting upset, you know. I'm I'm getting angry about the way people treat other people. I'm getting angry at the way people treat me. I'm getting angry at our stupid society and how we have many backward ideas about gay people and trans people and poor people and rich people and black people and Asians and white people and Jewish people and you know, I I get real angry about that and I really love being angry about that because it fucking deserves anger. If we don't get angry about certain things and we're lost. Anger motivates us. Anger gets us up in the morning. Anger points us in a direction. Anger gets us talking and gets other to galvanize with us and we can make things happen. Everything good that has happened in our society has been sparked by anger. Angry black people at segregation in the South caused the civil rights movement. Angry early colonists 
were, uh, started the American Revolution to break away from the British Empire because they were angry about taxes and about lack of representation. Anger about being treated like shit as gay people led to movements in New York City and San Francisco and other places that led to eventually today where it's legal for gay people to get married. Anger is what moves us. Anger is wonderful. And we all have to value anger. I find that a lot of therapists and, and a lot of people in society, whenever we're talking about anger, we're talking about how to suppress it, how to let it go. You know, the way you ask this question, Ashley, is, um, you know, those people who struggle with disproportionate anger. Well, maybe they're not actually struggling with anger. Maybe actually the anger is what's good. Maybe the problem is they're suppressing it in a way that makes it pop out in this weird way. So, you know, you're not exactly saying that, Ashley. I, I mean, I really enjoy your question. But anyway, I hope you get my point here. Okay, so the other thing we want to talk about is there are different types of anger. And if I was, and I did teach anger management back in the day to both people. So back in the day when I worked at agencies, there would be a pretty steady flow of uh, people who would get referred sometimes by their own accord or sometimes by court order because of some problem that was deemed as being a cause of, of anger. And we would assess them and we would figure out what sort of problem they had. And they often, they would go into one of three camps. They either went into individual or family therapy, couples therapy, you know, psychotherapy, that route. Or they went to what we called anger management, which was anger management classes. It was for 10 weeks for an hour, an hour and a half class, I think once a week. So it was a 10 week class and you just learned different ways of uh, coping with your anger and managing it. And then there was the third option, which was the domestic violence treatment, which was a year-long intensive outpatient treatment, uh, group therapy, essentially. And people in this category would often have been charged with an assault, a fourth degree or, or higher, who, you know, someone who had, a, had hit their spouse or done something physically abusive to their spouse had gone, been prosecuted, gone to court, and the court orders them into domestic violence treatment. And so there's a lot of different kinds of people that we would find. And um, I, when I would work with these people, either in the DV group, the anger management, their psychotherapy group, I always wanted to talk with them about, well, let's broaden this out. You know, one, let's not shame anger. You know, we're not here to shame anger. We're here to actually perhaps uh, wrap our arms of love around our anger so that we can actually have a good relationship with our anger. The other thing I want to talk about is there's different kinds of ang anger, just like there's different kinds of happiness or sadness or something. So we want to, we don't want to just, we just, we don't want to pigeonhole all of anger into one little thing because anger in some ways might be the most varied emotion of all, of all the emotions. There's just so many different situations and types and expressions and experiences of it. So the first kind that I can think of off the top of my head is a justified type of ang anger. You know, your coworker steals something from, you know, your coworker steals your stapler and you're angry about that. Well, that's justified. When your government doesn't support measures to reduce greenhouse gases, that should make you angry. If you're not angry about that, there's something wrong with you, right? So this is justified anger. You should be angry about that. This anger, we evolved in all likelihood to motivate us to do something. If we didn't have this anger response, 
we wouldn't be motivated. You know, think about the feeling of anger. You get hot under the collar. You get your blood starts to boil, people will say. Their heart starts to pound. Their adrenaline starts to go. Well, this is a fight or flight response, and often it's, it's, you know, it's a fight response, right? It's like you have to fight for your resources. You have to strike back. If we were on uh, the Serengeti you know, 300,000 years ago and some rival tribe came over and started taking all your stuff, then you got to get angry. If a rival tribe came over to try to steal your child, your infant, you should get angry about that, right? Anger is wonderful in that way. So we have to embrace the wonderful aspects of anger in that way. So that's justifying anger. And those situations, again, if you're not angry, what's wrong with you? You should be angry. Again, it's what we do with the anger. It's not the emotion. The emotion is not the problem. It's what we do. In fact, anger, uh, back in the day, we started using this phrase of anger responses. It's not anger. Anger is not the problem. The problem is our response to our own anger. That's, That's the thing we have to think about. You know, If you're at work and your coworker takes your stapler and you walk up and you punch them in the face because that's you embracing your anger, then we have to ask ourselves: is that the right thing to be doing? Is that what you really want to be doing, given your overall goals? What's your goal here? You know, your, your anger tells you something's wrong, and your anger is motivating you to do something. Uh, think about the end goal. What sort of outcome do you want to have? Well, what you want to have is you want to get your stapler back and you want to make sure that person doesn't steal your stapler or anything else again. And you want to kind of tell everyone else, look, don't steal my shit. So, uh, so that's your goal. Well, how are you going to manage that? That that's what your anger is motivating you to do. And until you write that wrong, you're going to be upset. You're going to be angry. But if you just walk over and punch them in the face, it's going too far. And you, now you have all these consequences to it. You might go to jail. You might lose your job. That's, that's not what your goal was. Your goal was just to get the stapler back and to make sure they didn't do it again and, or maybe even understand why they took it in the first place. Who knows? So anyway, so there's justified anger. Uh, the other type, or it's not really a different type, but another way of looking at anger is through the attachment lens. Bowlby, actually, John Bowlby, I did a 17-hour deep dive on John Bowlby and attachment not too long ago. And one of the things that I talked about in the deep dive was about anger. And that anger, we all, you know, like I said, we evolved it, and it, it motivates us to do a lot of things. And one of the things that it motivates us to do is to manage our attachments, to stay close to people. So when we were infants, we would be separated occasionally from our parents or caregivers, and that would freak us out. And we evolved a lot of emotions to, you know, kick in when we can't see our parents. And these these emotions motivate certain things. And so when you're um, 18 months old, you, you might cry, right? You might get sad. And at first, you know, your your parents leave the room and you start to cry. Then when they come back, you might actually, if it took them too long to get back, you might actually be angry at them. You might be like, how come you left me? You know, and you might actually, you know, infants will sometimes even strike their parents in a very weak fashion. And so Bowlby believed that anger in this way evolved among human, the human species as a behavior to protest separation or neglect, that all children will express anger in this way. And 
regardless of what they learned. It's just something that we are born with. In the same way that children are born with the response of crying when they're separated from their parents. You don't learn that. It's just something you're born with. And so we look at anger through that lens of like, okay, well, what kind of analogy or grown-up version of that happens to us where we feel angry? So when someone takes our stapler, we could look at that as a act of separation, an act of um, being rejected by the tribe or something. To, 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 or maybe a better example that I will often use is your spouse is at, you're at dinner with your spouse and your spouse keeps looking at their phone and they're not paying attention to you. Well, this is analogous to your parents leaving you alone at preschool the first day at preschool. You feel neglected. You feel hurt. You feel rejected. You feel alone. And this makes you feel sad and angry. So you feel hurt, and then you have this anger response to motivate you to say, hey, put your phone down, because you're actually expressing love for this person, or it comes from a place of attachment and love. And that is a very useful way of looking at a lot of anger, particularly when we're thinking about interpersonal. When I'm angry at the government for not supporting laws that reduce greenhouse gases, it's not necessarily attachment. That's that's like more sort of a territory or some sort of a safety reaction. But but attachment in my in my world, the vast majority of anger problems come from this attachment issue. Um, someone actually asked on Discord recently in the Discord chat about whether you know how how do we deal with people who are impatient? I think they were like maybe their partner was impatient or something. And they were like, how do I deal with my partner when they're so impatient all the time? And I was trying to get into it over text, but it was hard because, you know, this discord is a lot of typing. I actually might change it to be more word verbs, you know, um, microphone based, whatever you call that, because then I can just talk. But um, when people are impatient, often it's because they feel a sense of uh, they're hurt or they feel a sense of, un, of danger. And then they'll get impatient. And impatience is, is kind of a, often a manifestation of anger, right? It's an expression of hostility. Like, why are you taking so long? And so um, anyway, so attachment is what I was talking about. All right. So we have justified anger and another way of looking at it is through attachment lens and um uh, mood is also another thing to look at is that for a lot of people, they suffer from ongoing mood changes or just uh, a depressed mood or an irritable mood. And, you know, through bipolar or depression or just general ir- irritability, then that's another way of thinking about angry. You know, when you're, when you're at your wits end, when you're tired, when, you know, when you're, um, when you've been treated like shit recently, you just don't have a lot of capacity to have grace for other people. And, and you might actually just be irritable and angry. So that's another way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is through the personality disorder lens. And this is also related to attachment, of course. Personality disorders like conduct disorder, psychopathy, antisocial, narcissistic, borderline histrionic. These people were um, relationally traumatized early in life and are very sensitive to being relationally hurt 
in their adult life and will act out through various different attachment behaviors. They might have exaggerated attachment behaviors, such as anger. So that's just another way of looking at it. Another way of looking at anger is through the trauma lens. Often when people are abused as children, they, one, have a skewed sense of what's okay to rage about, and two, they're very sensitive to threat. So I've seen this before with a lot of people, is that they... So say you grew up with a father who was very, would rage a lot, was angry a lot, and would yell at everyone a lot and intimidate people a lot. Well, you're being traumatized as a child during those moments, and you you learn what you see. So what you're looking at is you're seeing, my God, like, I guess rage is normal, or I guess men, it's, it's okay for men to rage. Uh, and as you grow up, you start realizing that that's not the case. You start going, no, no, no. My dad was weird. He he wasn't he wasn't normal. Other people don't do that. But your gauge for that never really quite fades away. And so part of you still considers it normal. And so when you ha- when you're angry, you you have a a skewed sense of what is okay because you were given this model and example that was so extreme and, and you're better that you're not as bad as your dad is as an adult. Cause you've gone through therapy and you've learned, but you still have a skewed sense of what is moral and what's okay. Uh, it's a, some, a lot of similar things happen with cheating on people when you're abandoned or when you're relationally hurt growing up, or even if your parents cheated on each other, then you grow up with this different sense of like, what is okay to do in that situation you you have a different uh, gauge of like where the line is and so even though you're trying to not be like your parents it's sometimes it's hard to be like your parent hard not to be like your parents the other thing is is that when you're traumatized in this way you're you know you're being yelled at you're being intimidated you're scared you're you're kind of like a a raw nerve as you grow up and when anything happens to you then this side of you sort of kicks in to protect yourself. And because you, you, there's a part of you that believes something very terrible has happened. As an example, I watched this recent YouTube video of this guy was, he was a military guy and he was just raging about uh, a, a, a minor fender bender that happened. So essentially what happened, I think it was, it was a pretty viral video, so people may have seen it, but if you Google it, you'll, you'll find it. Essentially what happened was this guy was with his wife in the car. His wife was actually in the military, and the guy uh, just barely bumped the car in front of him. And the car in front of him, the guy gets out and starts banging on the window and saying, like, come outside, come outside, I'm going to fight you. And then the, the girlfriend or the wife who's in the military, she starts to film this whole thing. The driver is just sitting there staring at a steering wheel, like, going, okay, I, I'll just wait for the cops to show up because I'm not going to walk outside and fight this guy. And I'm also not going to acknowledge him because why? He's just, he's going crazy. But the guy outside, you can just see him with this with this phone video. The guy is banging on the window. He's like, get out here. Or I'm going to kick your ass. How come you're not coming out here? I'm going to get out here. You know, you pussy. I'm going to kick you. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And the point of this viral video is like, look at this douchebag in the military who 
you know, can't handle having his having his you know car barely bumped. And then some other military guys finally arrive and they start to grab the guy, hold him back, and then he really flips out. And in that moment, it was when I realized that this guy in all likelihood suffers from PTSD. It doesn't um, justify the anger response, but it explains it. I actually had this happen to me when I was young. I was driving as a 16-year-old with my friends around Factoria in Bellevue next to Seattle. And it was a summer afternoon and we were being obnoxious. And I thought I saw some friends of mine. So I started backing my car up and I didn't see that there was a car behind me. And at the very last minute, my friend was like, Hey, Honda, you know, car. And so I slammed on the brakes, but I, but I bumped the car behind me. And the, the guy, I, I looked in my rear, rear view mirror and I, and it was like a nice, like, white 280z if you remember that car it was like one of the sweet 80s cars and i see this douchebag looking kind of guy get out of his car and he takes his sunglasses off he throws them on the ground and he stomps on his own sunglasses and i thought oh boy so i see him walking up to the car and i'm like okay i don't want i don't want to have anything to do with this guy so I start rolling up my window that back then, you know, you have manual rolling up. And so I'm rolling up the window because I'm just thinking I, I need to give him some time to cool off. I'm not going to fight this guy. That's stupid. So I, I'm ro- rolling up the window and I'm just about to lock the door and he grabs. I didn't expect him to do this. He, he opened the, he opened my car door and he grabbed my door and bent it beyond its its range and and bent my entire like door uh thing <laughs> hinge and the fender behind the door you just just imagine just this massively raging douchebag just like ranking on my car door and i'm looking over and i'm just like whoa <laughs> i mean again remember i'm in a parking lot and i backed up and barely touched his bumper. And by the way, no damage, you know, just like a gunk, like the way you might kind of bump a car when you're parking or something. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, what is going on here? And then he, he grabs in, I'm in a totally defenseless position because I'm sitting down with a, with a seatbelt on and I, I can't, you know, you can't really defend yourself and I'm right-handed. So he's at my left side and I can't, and he starts to pummel me. He's like reaching into the car and he's beating on me. And my friends are trying to save me. So they're pulling me because I have a friend in the passenger seat. I also have a friend in the back seat. And both of them are trying to pull me away from this guy. <laughs> so one guy is, you know, he's got his hand on me and he's just bang hitting me on the on my side of my head as hard as he can. And my other friends are are pulling are pulling me like, hey, you know, stop! I just felt like this sack of potatoes just being passed, you know, between these two people. And and then so my friend, the friend that I saw that I backed up for, you know, I was driving through the parking lot, like, oh my god, my friends was this small fire plug of a fire plug. That's not the right term, but some some uh, firecracker fire. Uh, what am I? Spark plug. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to think. She was a spark plug. She was short and fiery. And 
she comes running up on the guy, you know, small little girl. She comes running up on the guy and she's like, what the fuck are you doing? And she just starts screaming at him. And now I'm getting my senses back. I'm like back in my seat and I'm looking over and I see this little blonde girl just screaming at him and chastising him. And the guy just turned on a dime in his emotions and was now totally ashamed of what he did. I could see it. I could see that he was just beside himself. He was like, oh my God, what did I just do? And he's just sort of surveying the situation, like his sunglasses, no damage, the door, me, this random girl yelling at him in a parking lot. And I can't remember what we did. I think we sued the guy. If I'm not, my parents like helped me sue him or cause he had to pay for the damage to the car. But anyway, I didn't really know it at the time, but when I think back, I, 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 I'm quite positive. The guy had PTSD. Imagine you're, you're in your sweet car. So the, the narrative is like douchebag, right? The narrative is like, Oh my God, he's a douchebag. And certainly that was my narrative at the time and just furthered my, divorce with aggression as a young male, even though I was captain of the football team. And when I was on the football field, man, did I love to thump people, but off of the football field, I was a pacifist. I thought that uh, aggression and violence in those, uh, you know, areas were completely illogical, immature, and is often the bane of our society, killing millions upon millions of people, uh, for no reason. And so I, uh, it just, that was another example of just like me learning like, oh yeah, that's right. That's a, a world I do not want to go to. Uh, that's a world I'm going to reject and I'm going to be a pacifist. And there are many other times when that would happen, like where I'd be in some kind of a fight and I'd, I'd be the one just standing there going like, I, I'm not going to participate in this. I, I realize you're calling me a pussy and I, I don't care. Um, you know, if you, if you attack me, I'll, you know, I'll defend myself, but, uh, you, you know, you random guy on the street insulting my manhood. Uh, I, I one, uh, I, I don't care about your opinion about my manhood and two, what is manhood? <laughs> I I think it's more manly to look at you and go like, okay, enough, enough of that silliness. Um, anyway, so later I realized I was looking at, uh, situations like that and I realized that, you know, like the idea of PTC. So imagine you're sitting in your car and you see this car in front of you stop and you, so you stop your car in a parking lot and then all of a sudden the car throws it, you know, it's in reverse and it comes, you know, speeding back towards you and then bumps your bumper. Well, if you have been traumatized either through war or through family life or through being bullied, then your body has changed. You have a physiological reaction to that sort of thing. It's the same thing after being raped or any, any sort of trauma and your, your body goes into another state so we've all experienced this where we lose our temper, right? We all, we, all of us have been like, oh boy, I, lo- I lost my temper in that moment. I was too angry. I lost perspective. Well, there's a reason why we have that mechanism, which is like there are times when you need to lose perspective. There are times when you need to freak out to defend yourself or to defend the people that you love. You don't have time to just think, well, okay, I'm kind of angry. What do I want to do? 
we have we evolved this mechanism of extreme anger responses when we are in extreme danger. So if you have been as a child going or, a, you know, before through some sort of ongoing trauma, been made to feel as if you are in extreme constant danger, then there's a certain pathway in your neurons that becomes very habituated in, in that it doesn't take much to pull that trigger in your neurons. And so it, with that guy, he's sitting in the car, the car in front of him stops and then reverses and, you know, bangs into his car, his nervous system in all likelihood kicked into something that was old and very familiar to him. And what he learned growing up was you either have to run or you got to fight. And, and you don't, you don't have time to think you just got to act. And so he just jumped out of the car. And so he was just going to, he was just going to pound me because that's what was his instinct told him to do. And then as soon as this woman comes up and starts to chastise him, that probably was some sort of transference about his mom, and he snapped out of it. And uh, that's real. Now, I don't have that kind of PTSD, so that doesn't happen to me. But there's countless reports of people, particularly war veterans, who have these kinds of responses. The Robert Bales case, the guy in Afghanistan who went on the killing spree and killed dozens of people, uh, civilians in Afghanistan. The defense, anyway, was that defense. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm partial to that argument. I I don't think he should necessarily go free. I don't know what the legal system should do. But, it, it, and he killed innocent Afghanistan people, you know, so there's that. But uh, it's a real thing that when you go through war like that, that amount of pressure and that amount of danger on a daily basis, your brain develops a very itchy trigger finger, a very sensitive trigger finger to that kind of response that we only need to depend on every now and then. But when, you, when you're when you in constant need of that response, then you, that response is very quick. And so I there's this video online of that kind of thing. So that's, an, that's how trauma can result in anger. Now, I, I hesitate to give that example. Well, what I should say is to people is whenever you see people getting angry, don't, don't necessarily interpret it as trauma-related because it might not be. But it is, it is possible. I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not justifying it. I'm not justifying the guy who pummeled me <laughs> um, and broke my door of my car because I barely tapped his bumper. I, I obviously am not justifying that behavior, but it explains something. And what it points us to is that we have a lot of people walking around with completely undiagnosed and untreated PTSD, and they're walking time bombs. And we see examples of these people flipping out in society often. And when you grow up in a very unsafe uh, in a community, neighborhood, and your families typically grew up in those kind of you know, neighborhoods and had to fight a lot for their own safety, then you're going you're gonna to see kids with some pretty um, aggressive, odd responses to things. And you'll see videos like this. You'll see a bunch of poor kids just going crazy on police officers and the thing that they don't show is, well, where did all that aggression come from? And how much danger and unsafety has that child 
been subjected to that makes them very quick to uh, become aggressive. I I have this <laughs> the past I don't know six months or something. You you know YouTube suggests videos to you, right? You know it'll be like maybe you might like this, and for whatever reason, it started suggesting all these like police cam videos that I started watching. And as I'm watching it, I'm seeing all these. Uh, not all the time, but some sometimes the suspect or the perp or whatever it reacts very aggressively. Like someone will get pulled over for speeding, and the police officer will say a couple of questions, and the the driver will be kind of snotty, and the the police officer will say, "Well, I'm going to ask you to step out of the car," and then the person's like, "I'm not going to do it," and then the police officer grabs the person. And then it escalates, you know, the, the person in the car doesn't submit and they, they just freak out, freak out. And the comments in YouTube, which are always awful, but the comments are often like, oh, that piece of shit. Or, you know, why did that person not just comply with the police officer? You know, if you don't comply, you get what you get. But often, and, and maybe that's true, but one of the things that I often will see is I suspect that person had been physically violated often in their life and have a very itchy trigger finger, sensitive trigger finger on defend yourself physically when someone puts hands on you. And it's not rational. You know, it's not something that the person is like, okay, I don't like this cop. I'm not going to let them cuff me. It's something that kicks in for them. That's primal that maybe they were, you know, you got a, a 22 year old black male who might have been like severely sexually abused from the age of like three until he was seven. And then this police officer walks up and puts hands on him. It, it's not going to go over well. So um, it, it it's something that I think we ignore. I, I'm not saying police shouldn't be able to do what they have to do, but I'm saying that as a society, we have to help to raise awareness for this and actually treat it in people. Um, the last uh, angle of looking at anger I thought of is through drug inducement. There are certain substances that can elicit anger. You know, cocaine, for example, can increase aggression. Uh, PCP. There, there are certain drugs that they don't always uh, increase aggression by any means, but they can. So it's just another way of looking at anger. All right. Um, there are probably other ways of looking at it, but those are the things I could think of off the, off the top of my head. Um, so now let's, so that's like different lenses. But now let's look at like manifestations, like experience of anger. Well, one is an internal feeling that, so when we talk about anger, again, we, we're often talking about bad behaviors, you know, anger management, you have a problem with anger. Um, you know, why are you so angry? The, these are, we usually are using the word anger when we're talking about bad things, but we also have to acknowledge, again, it's just a feeling like sadness. And you can have anger inside of you and not have it be a problem and have no behaviors. Maybe you say, I feel angry, but you don't, you don't have anything beyond that. Another thing that can be a manifestation of anger is agitation or arousal. So that fight or flight response. Another is aggression or hostility. This is when you're actually attacking other people verbally, mentally, or physically. Another is turning inward. A lot of people turn their anger inward, and it can become self-hate and depression. 
And also an anger manifestation is motivation to take action. That's another manifestation of anger. All right, so let's look at treatment. Well, it depends on the reason, but when we're talking about anger management in general, often what we're talking about is some kind of cognitive therapy or behavioral therapy, you know, DBT, ACT, this kind of thing. And you're, you're working on people's cognitions, you're working on people's behaviors, you're, you know, they are on the, they're often angry when they're driving a car. And they're in, in so someone uh, doesn't use their turn signal, right? And you just completely flip out and you like road rage and this sort of thing. So the cognition there is like, okay, they didn't use their blinker, why? Well, if you believe, if your narrative is that they didn't use their blinker because they're a piece of shit and they need to be told that they're a piece of shit, then that'll make you feel a certain way and might motivate certain behaviors. But if you think they didn't use their blinker because maybe they they have a cognitive problem, maybe they're older and they you know they're having a little harder time getting around, maybe they're distracted, maybe they just didn't see you, or maybe they um, I don't know they there's just a lot of different reasons why you know all of us have not used our blinkers at times when we should have. It's just a mistake that people make sometimes. Now, having said that, people, please use your blinkers. But um, if you tell yourself a different story, then you're going to have a different emotion. You're going to have a different response. And so that's where cognitive therapy comes in. Another uh, treatment for anger is through attachment, psychodynamic, interpersonal work, where you're trying to get corrective emotional experiences for the for the trauma or, or the neglect or the relational traumas that you've been through so that you're less threatened by certain behaviors that will make you less hurt and less anger, less angry in response. When you're alone and when you have nobody and you've never had anybody, then you're very quick to anger. You know, this is the, the MGTOW people and the incel people. They're very lonely <clears throat> and in all likelihood they've never had anybody close to them. And so they're very angry and they should be angry. They're pointing it in weird directions, but they should be angry. To expect a incel who has never had a close relationship to not be angry is just, it's not fair. They should be angry. But it's just, we have to help them understand their anger and help them to have secure relationships and so that they just have a less baseline anger. Couple and family therapy is another route for treating anger. People are often angry in interpersonal situations and helping the, you know, you have an, an angry wife and you bring in the couple and you find that she's angry because she's hurt a lot. She doesn't really know she's hurt a lot. And through the therapy and couples therapy, you learn that there are interactions between the husband and wife that cause both people to feel hurt. And one of the manifestations of that hurt is the wife being angry. So when you actually work on that relationship, you can, you can reduce the reason why anyone in that relationship was being angry. Of course, you can do domestic violence or intimate partner violence treatment, or you can just take a class on anger management. There's a lot of different ways. But so getting back to your question, patron Ashley, you're asking, it'd be great to have a, an episode that includes tips for those who struggle with disproportionate anger, how to de-escalate oneself and so forth. Um, Again, the the tips completely depend on the foundation of the anger itself. So uh, emotional awareness, emotional regulation is a wonderful thing. It's very hard to do, though. We often sort of think like, well, okay, you know, just look at your anger, take a deep breath. I mean, deep breaths 
great. You know, if, if that works for you, that's, that can work for everybody to a certain extent. But if you're angry because you have PTSD or if you're angry because you've never had a secure relationship in your life, or if you're angry because you're being treated like shit by people, then, you know, deep breaths are fine, but there's another full world of quote unquote anger management that has to be addressed. If you know what I'm saying, uh, you also ask, it would be good to have some tips for those who, uh, who are around someone with anger issues like parents, friends, partners, etc. Same advice is the person. So if you have an angry person in your life, you have to figure out why they're angry. Often what people will do, like I said, is they'll say, stop being angry. You know, they'll look at their angry child or their angry parent or friend, and they'll just be like, you have to stop being angry. Stop it. You need to stop that. And on some level, that's okay. You know, if someone's being aggressive or out of control or something, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, you know, let's, 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 you know, bring it down a couple of notches. But the bigger issue is you have to ask this person, like, what are you trying to do with this anger? You know, why are you angry? And I'm, and I'm genuinely curious because this podcast told me that, you know, you're angry for a reason. So please tell me why you're angry. Now, a lot of people don't necessarily know. Um, for example, if, if you have an angry spouse that's often angry at you, in all likelihood, it's because they feel hurt by you and the hurt in all likelihood is because they feel rejected by you somehow. They feel alone. They feel like you don't care. They feel criticized. They feel um, like you're not loyal. You're not, you're not dedicated to them. And when you actually figure that out, then you have your answer to the anger. It doesn't, doesn't mean that they can get angry all the time. It doesn't mean that they're justified in that way. But it means like, okay, once you figure that all out, then you, then you have an interpersonal way of actually managing the relationship so the person doesn't ever have to be angry to begin with. So they never have to manage anything. That's really the key to anger management is like, how do we get to a world, to a place where you don't need to manage your anger because the anger that you have is appropriate and healthy to begin with. And there's nothing to, there's nothing you have to sort of wrestle with. If you're wrestling with your anger, then in all likelihood, it's because something deeper is at play. And that's the thing you have to attack. You, you might benefit from some anger management tips in the short term. That's, that's why cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy cognitive therapy particularly is so great in the short term. That's what I do with a lot of people is I'll do a combination of cognitive schema narrative therapy that addresses the short term issues. But I'm also doing attachment based psychodynamic interpersonal work for the long term healing so that we can eliminate the reasons why they have the problem to begin with. But in the meantime, they need some way of coping which often you can do through cognitive therapy. So that is my answer to that. Let's go on to another email. Actually, I talked for a lot longer than I thought I would, so let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. I have some announcements to make. First off, I don't know if I've said this in the podcast yet, but someone figured out the code in the new intro music. It is just the chords of C, G, E, A, E. 
a lot of you had a lot of great guesses and some interesting guesses. Some people thought it was Morse code and all those other things. But basically, if you take the title, and this is what someone guessed, and I, as a prize, I said, well, you know, what do you want for a prize? And what they said was they wanted a drawing from Umberto. So they're going to get one of Umberto's excellent masterpiece drawings. And these draw, I you know when I when I did the drawing thing for Umberto, I thought he would just draw something in like a couple a couple minutes, but he spends days on these drawings. I think he did He Man one time. Anyway, uh, so when you take the podcast title uh, "Psychology in Seattle," there are only five letters in the title that qualify as valid chords. So psy call, so you got C, psychology, and then you have the G. And then in Seattle, you have, you know, S-E-A, E and A are both chords, and then Seattle, E at the end. So you have C-G-E-A-E. And they don't actually, and, if I, and in the, the jingle, it's all major chords. It's, it's major C, it's major G, major A, major E, or sorry, G-E-A, E-A-A, E-A-E. They're all major chords, and they don't fit into the same key. It's there's a bit of modulation in the middle. But um, I thought, you know, when I explain this to people, they're like, "Oh, that's pretty simple," you know. And they're like, "I thought it was some like really deep, weird code that was like buried deep in the thing." That would be something Umberto would do. Umberto would do a code that was so deep and weird and convoluted that no one would ever figure it out. I like to create things that are easy to figure out. <laughs> I don't like to frustrate people. Like with the Tuesday Tougher Bluff game that I make on Facebook every Tuesday, I actually try to make the question a little intuitive, you know, or with a little thought, you could sort of figure it out. Now, sometimes I'm really honestly trying to trick people, but also it's just a tougher bluff. So it's just, it's just true or false. And so... um uh, I just I, – I like quizzes that people can answer. Like whenever I see people devising quizzes for an event or a podcast and the the people trying to guess are like, geez, I don't know, that's when you've designed a question that is terrible. You have to – the question has to be right on the edge of a little bit hard but not hard enough. And there's a very fine zone there. And anyway, so I, so I, when I was devising a, a code to put into the, the jingle, I, I just was thinking about it. I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty simple. And I thought, well, someone will guess that pretty soon. But apparently it was so easy that all of you mus- musicians out there thought that couldn't be it because it's too easy. And then you went down these other roads. And so this, uh, I can't remember her name, the patron, but she commented on Facebook. She's like, well, at first I thought it was this, but it couldn't be that. So then I started thinking all these other things. And then I just said, nope, you got it. And she's like, really? So anyway, uh, there you go. And I am so glad someone figured it out. Also, uh, become a patron on patreon.com. Also, email us if you have trouble with the premium feed. And also know that I am constantly working on solutions for better technology for the premium feed and the podcast in general. And there might actually be something on the horizon, either our own app or some app that's going to partner with Patreon and make it so that all you have to do is sign up on Patreon and then maybe um, download one app onto your phone 
and then everything will just be seamless onto your phone. So uh, I'm sure that'll happen within the next few years, but it's, it could happen soon. But also buy my book. It's called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. I think last month was the first month no one bought my book, which I have to say makes me a little sad. Um, <laughs> but uh, I spent a lot of time in that book, and I like it. If you're a supervisor, by all means, or if you're planning on becoming a supervisor, also if you're a clinician and you're entering supervision yourself, it might be good to kind of read it too because I think reading it helps you understand the importance of supervision as you're going through it yourself and might help you with advocating for yourself a little bit to make sure you get the supervision that you deserve. Because sometimes you just have to ask for the, you know, a lot of supervisors, what they do, particularly agency supervisors, what they'll do is they're just doing the administrative stuff, you know, the signing of the notes and the scheduling and the making sure you're not fucking up in any major way. And what they neglect is the mentorship and the attachment and the true guidance, the true teaching of like how to be a therapist, how to be a wise clinician. This is what supervision is made for. That's, that's its primary purpose. And in the book, I write a lot about that. And so sometimes as a supervisee, you have to advocate for yourself. You have to say, supervisor, I would like us to talk less about paperwork and more about my development as a wise healer of souls. So um, reading the book might help with that. Also, please like our Facebook page if you haven't done that. So you can, we post pictures and um, and that kind of thing. Also our Instagram, you can, we post to Instagram quite a bit. So, um, and we post questions and, you know, different kinds of things on Facebook and Instagram. Also, uh, join the Facebook fan group. You can tweet Birdo at and we're at, we're on Twitter as well as well. I don't use Twitter a lot, but you can tweet us there. Berto uses Twitter at psych zero Berto. He's also on YouTube. Berto is on YouTube. Um, also, um, if you've heard us talk about Discord, um, I every Thursday at two o'clock Seattle time, I'm going on Discord and it's like a chat forum uh, in real time, and we have a great time there. There's um, you can go there at any time, by the way. People interact all week long, and then I'm just there on on Thursdays at 2. And what I'm thinking about doing is actually doing a voice chat so that people can type questions, and then I'll respond via voice because I think it, it's just there's – the sometimes you ask me, like, these really awesome questions on Discord, and I'm trying to type really fast and – It'd just be so much easier if I could just say it. Plus, you know, the vocalization nuances of whatnot would be perhaps helpful. But anyway, so that I I want to make that kind of a thing because a lot of people will be like, oh, I have questions for you, but blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if you just know that every Thursday at 2 o'clock Seattle time, you can save your questions for then or you can just ask a little question or whatever. Um, or you can see what other questions people have and sort of benefit from that you know, watching other people ask questions, then um, I just, it just, I, I want to interact more with the listeners. I love getting your emails. I love responding, but there's just something more intimate about discord where it's just in the now. And, and I get a, that instant kind of back and forth with people. Anyway. Also, if you're looking for older episode, ep- episodes, go to the website, 
It's the best way to get older episodes. I get emails pretty much every day. People are like, I can't find this one episode on the app. And I'm like, or they, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people don't even know that there's other ways to listen to the episode, the podcast other than Patreon. <laughs> like I had no idea that people thought Patreon was the only way to listen to the podcast. If, if you're having troubles with Patreon, um, know that Patreon is not set up t- for podcasting. That's, it's not a podcasting platform. It's a, it's a subscription platform. The best way is through various other ways. And if you're having trouble, email me at contact at Um There are three ways to mainly listen to the, to the podcast. There's Patreon, which is fine, uh, for mainly like recent episodes. And there's your phone app, which both has the free uh, feed, which has the ads on it, and, both, and then the premium feed, which is for patrons. And then there's the website which both has the free episodes and the Patreon episodes as well. Uh, I personally think that a website is a great resource. If you're looking for different things, like, for example, I have one page with all Dungeons & Dragons episodes. I have another page with all Game of Thrones episodes. I have one page with all Family Therapy episodes. Another page, let me just read all the pages just to kind of give people what the what's what on what's happening. And while I'm clicking, I just keep talking. And here we are in psychologyseattle.com. Okay, so I have movies and TVs. I have a page for that. I have public figures. I have sexuality page. I have a theories page, a psychodynamic page, a therapy, different kinds of therapy page, a psychopathology page, a personality disorder page, a social justice page, a gender page, a page on politics, a page that has all the episodes on evolutionary psychology, another page for professional therapy things, another page for ethical things, another page that's just dedicated to novice clinicians, all the episodes where I'm trying to give advice for novice clinicians. I have another page just for the couples episodes. I have another page for the cl- for clients, you know, like advocating for clients. I have another page for parenting uh, I have another page where in, I have episodes in which I've talked about how to do podcasting. <laughs> um, and then I have, you know, other other pages as well. But anyway, so, I you know, use the website. I, th- I think it's a great resource. While I'm just doing all the different things here is we're always trying to get to the next goal on Patreon. And our, uh, we're pretty close to the goal, um, the next goal, which is to give away a... Uh, our third scholarship for $2,000, and we're also going to give $1,000 to PetFinder.com, which saves animals from being euthanized and sets them up with loving families. So um, it's really amazing. You know, as people uh, sign up on Patreon and we meet certain goals, we, we've given thousands of dollars to, ch- to charities. Uh, I, I don't know, 10 plus thousand or something. And it's just, it's humbling because Psychology in Seattle, it's basically just me. <laughs> Umberto shows up at my house and, you know, I, I set up the microphone for him and he talks for a few hours and then he goes home. He doesn't really do anything beyond that. My wife helps out here and there. By the way, if you're getting any sort of swag in the mail, my, my wife is the one that's taking care of all that kind of stuff. And so it's basically just me. And so when I get a big thrill writing out a check to different charities or for the scholarships. And, you know, by the end of 2019, I, I'm guessing we will have given out at least three scholarships this year. 
Um, one was for two thousand dollars. Another one was will be for twenty five hundred. You know, two thousand five hundred, and another one will be for two thousand dollars. That's a big deal for a scholarship. I mean, my my university is a small university, so it doesn't have a lot of extra funds for this sort of thing. And our scholarships are on the level of like four hundred dollars or something. And it was actually kind of funny. Not, I don't know what to say, but I was at a a, a faculty meeting at my university, and where people are giving out announcements, and and they're like, yeah, so we're, you know, make sure you tell everyone we're going to give out a five hundred dollar scholarship. And and everyone's like, oh, great. And then I'm like, oh, yeah. And I, so I raised my hand. And I'm like, well, and my podcast is giving out a $2,500 scholarship as well. And everyone just kind of looks at me like, what? <laughs> and like my dumb little podcast is giving bigger scholarships than my university is in, in a way. I mean, I, I don't know if that's empirically true for all the scholarships that my university gives out. But it. To me, I'm, the only reason why I'm saying this, not to brag, but to say that you as patron, it's your money. It's not my money. You are the ones that are the patrons who are signing up on Patreon, and you are donating that money to those people. So uh, congratulations to you, how you have made a difference in people's lives. You've saved pets from being euthanized. You've given homes to the homeless. You've helped LGBTQ youth. You people have done that. So be proud of yourself in that way. And I, I don't want to stop. I want to, for the rest of my life, I want to funnel part of the Patreon money towards those goals, towards those uh, charities, those, those causes. I just think it's a wonderful thing that you all are doing. Um, uh, this is a pivot. <laughs> I'm looking at my list. If you are an employer and you want to hire people and you want to sign up on ZipRecruiter.com, you might hear other podcasts advertising this, and you're thinking about signing up on ZipRecruiter, um, when you sign up on ZipRecruiter.com slash psychology in Seattle, so if you use that URL and you sign up, ZipRecruiter.com slash psychology in Seattle, then we get a kickback. Um, We have yet to get a kickback, so I have a feeling that my listeners – are not in the market to signing up for ZipRecruiter.com, and hence I barely ever talk about it. But it's on my list here, so I, I thought I'd rattle it off. Um, what else? I'm just getting all the different announcements out of the way here. Um, the scholarship for $2,500, our second scholarship, is underway. The application deadline has not happened yet. That's at June 30th at the end of the month. So if you or you know someone else who is a graduate, we're preferring graduate students in mental health. So someone in, you know, training to be a clinician, training to be a mental health clinician, and they are in graduate school, doctoral or master's program, and they have a year left and they have a need. So we're not just looking for people who are in graduate school. We're actually looking for people who, one, they there's something about them where they're like, look, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty low on money. I can't really depend on other people in this way. The other thing we're looking for are people that are, that have made a difference in the world and, or are going to make a difference in the world. So because obviously as a clinician, you're going to make a difference in the world, but I'm also just looking for that extra thing. Like the last person we gave the scholarship to the $2,000 scholarship to, she had, 
already made such a difference in the community. Um, she had, I believe she's in Seattle, right? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, privilege people in Seattle, but she's African-American young woman and doesn't listen to the podcast, by the way. She just, someone that did listen to the podcast told her about it. And she's a doctoral student in a PsyD program, and she works in a, in a very um, underprivileged community in the Seattle, uh, in the Seattle, in Seattle, South Seattle, I think White Center is where she's working. Um, we have this neighborhood called White Center. It's actually next to South Park. We have a South Park in Seattle, and White Center is near South Park, and they're both um, underprivileged communities. And she has chosen to work in those communities, and she trains other clinicians on how to work with African-American people and how to work with underprivileged people. So um, I can't remember all the things that she had done already, but she already did a lot of things anyway. And she had completely run out of money, and she was going to have to either drop out of school or um, – put her school on hold for a while because she couldn't afford next the next quarter's tuition, which was like already due. Let's see. Um, oh, the other thing we're looking for are, this actually is another sort of whole area here that I'm looking for, are one, the fan page on Facebook that I don't go to. It's just for fans. It has a lot of really dedicated people like April and... Amy and Lyndon, and there's a bunch of people who are pretty active there, but we're looking for a moderator. So if anyone wants to, it's not a full-time job by any means. It's just like someone who just kind of makes sure everything's uh, copacetic over there and makes sure, because I can moderate other places. Like I moderate everything else, but I can't moderate. I don't want to moderate that because I want it just, I want it to just be for fans. And I, 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 I want them to be able to talk about on the Facebook fan group you know, knowing that I'm not going to ever go there. So you can complain about me or whatever. Um, so if you want to moderate that, let me know. That would be cool. Also, you know, if, if you think about wanting to ever volunteer your time or maybe even getting paid for your time for the podcast and you, you have an idea, like um, you want to start psychology in Denver or something and you want to partner with me or – you want to become an intern with us and you want to do research for me and maybe even do episodes with me or something, um, I'm open. Uh, I, I wonder if anyone has thoughts like that and they're like, ah, Kirk doesn't want that. Um, I, I'm open to having a conversation. I, I obviously can't guarantee that it's something that I'm interested in, but um, I am interested in having the conversation because I, I want – to I want a lot of other I like collaborating with other people as the podcast grows I want more people involved and um like a a dream to me would be to have paid employees who do research who look up uh, research who com you know compile notes we work on different episodes together and then when we make an episode it's it's more well produced, I should, you know, um, and, you know, maybe even some reporting, like you actually go out into the field and ask people questions and, you know, compile different packages in that way. 
I don't know if that's something anyone's interested in doing, but I could I could imagine that being pretty cool. So if you're if you're into that kind of thing, I, I I'd love to talk with you. Or if you want to be an illustrator for the podcast, you know, you just want to. Some people will submit art. If you want to uh, do some art for the website, like you want to draw me and Umberto uh, arguing at each other or something, I, I love stuff like that when people send me stuff like that. So um, if you have suggestions or whatever, I, I just am interested. So email me at contact.psychologyinseattle.com or go to the Discord and we can talk about it there. Okay, I think that's all the all the announcements I have. It took me a long time. All right, let's go into another email. What do you say? All right, this next email is from patron Karen. Karen was wanting to ask questions about trauma-informed care and the adverse childhood experiences study and protective factors. She says, a lot of organizations that routinely see young families, including some pediatrician offices, Head Start programs, and WIC programs, have in recent years adopted some things to help them make an impact with people who are experiencing trauma, such as trauma-informed care, uh, emotional regulation, etc. I'm hoping in the future there will be more guidance on what we can tell moms, teach young children, or encourage people close to those suffering from routine trauma. Yeah, interesting email, patron Karen. Um, I had to actually, I had to do a little bit of a, a shallow dive into this because I, it's not really my area since as a therapist who focuses on trauma, I have always known about trauma, I suppose, in my professional career, and I'm always focusing on trauma and what trauma-informed care often that, so let me get into this. So anyway, I had to look into it a little bit because um, it's just not my area, but it was interesting to learn about. What I learned was that trauma-informed care can mean a lot of different things, but in general, what it means is that it's this notion that when people go to a doctor's office or the ER, or uh, they're even just going to their social worker to talk about food stamps, we uh, might do better by these people if the helpers and the you know the social workers and the teachers and the the physicians understand how to provide trauma informed care meaning that they understand that some people might be traumatized and therefore it, unless they adjust their practice somehow they might actually cause more trauma for the patient for example say a woman has been raped for example and or she was sexually abused growing up and she goes to a new physician and the physician is a male and the physician asks you know and the the woman has complaints about abdominal abdominal <laughs> abdominal pain or you know something in her groin region is bothering her and the physician says okay well if i could ask you to i'll, I'll leave the room if you could disrobe I'll come back in the room, you know, the normal procedure. Well, if the, for, for a lot of people, they're like, okay, I'm at the doctor. I'm, I'm asking about my groin area. Of course, I want him to look at it. So I'm going to disrobe and I'm going to, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but uh, I'm, I'm cool with it. I understand, you know, I'm, I'm not triggered in any way. Whereas if you were sexually abused and 
the physician resembles the abuser in any sort of way, even just being male can sometimes trigger in that way. And this might be one of the only doctor's visits that you've, you've even gone to, then you might be triggered by that and your PTSD is going to kick in. You're going to have a massive spike in distress and you might just leave the office or you'll go through with the examination while you're just white knuckling it and then you leave and you never go back to a doctor ever again. And so a trauma-informed physician would say to someone, so this is just, you know, me just making something up on the stop on the, on the spot. I don't know exactly what the recommendations are to physicians, but I would imagine what it would entail is like you have a brand new patient and she's talking about something going on in her groin area and you say, okay, so, um, in, in order, so you've given me your list of complaints. You have some pain. It sounds like in your pubis region and there, I don't know the technical term, it, you know, down there in your private parts, you have some, some pain in order for me to do a proper examination to figure out what's going on so that I might figure out what treatment you need. I'm going to have to take a look at it. Now that can be done today or it can be done another day. It can be done by me. It can be done by someone else. Uh, and so, um, you know, there's no rush uh, from the symptoms you're laying out. I'm, I, I'm not worried you're going to die today. Um, you know, it doesn't sound like an emergency. So, you know, the exam could happen tomorrow if need be. But I just want to lay that out for you and, and ask you what you want to do. Would you, would you like me to look at it now? Or would you like to, would you like to make another appointment? Or w would you like maybe another physician to look at it? You know, I'm a, I'm a man and maybe you want a woman to look at it. It's up to you. And so you're giving the patient a very clear explanation of what is ahead and why you're suggesting that she disrobe. And you're also giving her a lot of control. You're giving her a lot of, you're empowering her because the goal is not to traumatize the patient. The goal is to meet the client, the patient's needs, which the patient is asking for help with this pain. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be the one to do the examination. Someone else can do it. Someone else can even provide the treatment. And by giving the patient the time to think about it also gives the patient control. Because if the patient is being triggered, they might not know how to make a choice right now. And so you're, you're saying to them, you can, uh, you can make another appointment for that if you want tomorrow or something. That gives the patient this out, this, you know, you don't want to box people in. And so the patient might be like, okay, I know I'm freaking out right now. And so, yes, I want to leave the office right now and I'll rethink this whole thing. And then maybe I'll make another appointment for that. Now there are downsides to that, right? Because what if the woman leaves and she doesn't come back and she has some kind of problem that she doesn't get treated for and, and you could have assessed it and treated it right there. So there's a, there's a balance to this whole thing. Also, there's a downside to this trauma-informed care in that it requires a lot more time. You have to spend time asking those questions. You have to potentially, you know, if she's like, oh, I'd rather have a woman look at it, then you've got to, you know, wait around for another physician who's a woman. And, you know, it's just, it's just a lot more time, but it's ethical practice, frankly. So, so that's what trauma-informed care can look like in a physician's office. And it really is quite varied. I mean, that's an obvious sort of quintessential example, but trauma can involve so many different things, right? Right. 
like um, just anything that's scary, essentially. You, you, can be, you can be traumatized by a movie. You can be traumatized by a car crash or, um, you know, witnessing something happening to, some, to someone else, having just a, some sort of near-death experience. You can be traumatized by turbulence in an airplane. It, whatever makes you terrified in the moment then can result in long-lasting residual trauma. Bad drug trips can be traumatizing. Suddenly realizing that your spouse cheated on you can be traumatizing. Your, you know, parents dying. Even I have, I know, how do I put this? I know people who have been traumatized by their parents dying, even though their parents were very, very elderly. And it was well known that the parents were going to die, you know, that the woman, you know, the, so, so imagine, I'm just trying to figure out how to say this without revealing who I'm talking about. So imagine that you have a, your, your mother is, has been, has been in and out of the hospital for 15 years with various different ailments. And each time she goes into the hospital, you're thinking, well, this could be the end. And she's now 95 years old. And so it's just a matter of time. It's very, it's, it's a matter of short time that your mother's going to die. And so you're prepared for it. And it's not a big shock when and if it happens, but death can still be very traumatizing to people. It's very rattling to a lot of us to just have someone snuffed out like that, especially if you have to witness certain elements of it. Like if you're there when people go into convulsions or you're there when you are putting your pet down and the physician is injecting the substance into the veins of, of your, of your loved pet. These can be traumatic events. They're, they're not always, it just depends on the person and um, you know, the way that things played out. Things are, there's certain events that are more likely to be traumatizing. Like if you saw someone get shot so a loved one gets shot right in front of you. That's much more likely to be traumatizing. But in my experience, there are just so many different things that can cause trauma and PTSD that you just can't really generalize that much. And I hate it when people try to, because anything can be scary. And people will ask me like, you know, can you be traumatized by a movie that that's really scary? And I'm like, yeah, you could be traumatized by, um, you know, Ronald McDonald. You can be traumatized by an umbrella. You can be traumatized by a bumblebee. It, it's all. It just. It all just depends on what produces or what a series of events produce a a sense of terror in you. That's that's all that's necessary. It's just the sense of terror. You can be traumatized by nothing. I mean, when I had panic attacks uh, when I was growing up, I was. I would have this intense panic without anything that I was afraid of. There was nothing that was actually causing the fear. And so I basically was traumatized by this sense of doom about nothing. There was, I mean, I had this vague sense, maybe I'll be dead soon or something, but it wasn't clear. So it, it, the only thing we need to have is just a sense of terror. So anyway, lots of people, domestic violence, um, you know, seeing a horrible video on YouTube, for example, that can be traumatizing. So there are a lot of things. And I guess I should say it's not necessarily terror. It's um, it could be terror, like 
someone has you at gunpoint and you're shaking and you're like certain you're going to die. That, that, that sort of terror. But it could also be like you're watching a YouTube video and then boom, someone just dies right in front of you or whatever sort of video. I think YouTube tries to um, not post stuff like that, but other websites certainly do like, I think live leak, live leak. Is that what's called? Anyway. So uh, there's other kinds of trauma too, where it's not, necessarily where you're feeling terror it's that images that are horrific to the soul can be traumatizing as well anyway so a lot of professions are looking into trauma-informed care because so many people have been traumatized i mean something like statistics wise like the majority of people and i might argue everyone has some form of ptsd either mild or or severe um, you know, mild to severe. I, I would, or at the very least, everyone has been traumatized by something. By by a certain age, if you don't have at least you know one to three traumas, then you know you're one of the luckiest people on the planet. So, because again, when you think about all the different things that could happen to you, that could just really be a very could be shocking to the system. So, a lot of professions are looking trauma informed care, and and they're thinking, okay, well. How, how do we do right by our patients, um, not only for moral and ethical reasons, but also for management reasons. Because if you are a physician and you're, you just go headlong into your regular treatment r- routine, you know, go back, going back to that example, say the physician just says, okay, I want you to disrobe. I'm, I'm going to step out for a second. I'm going to come back in. You step out of the room, you come back in, and the patient has not disrobed. And you're like, um, so I, maybe you didn't understand me. I, I need you to disrobe so I can examine you. I'm going to step out of the room for a couple of minutes. I'll come back in. And then the patient, let's say the patient's like 14 years old or 15. And you're, you're like, okay, what do I do here? You know, and, or the patient gets upset and has a breakdown of some kind, starts crying in the middle of the examination. So, not only is it moral and ethical to try to have trauma-informed care, but it's also like it could really ruin your career or your day, I should say, and maybe your career if you get you know sued for something. But anyway, so physicians are trying to look into trauma-informed care. Teachers, foster parents, police officers, homeless, homelessness, social workers, these these kinds of people. Um, so. So, yeah, Uh, the history apparently is that trauma-informed care was originally developed to help teens and, you know, adolescent kids in inpatient, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Um, And then it was expanded really to to all walks of life. And and I would say it'd be good, I'd love it, if everyone, even your clerk at your grocery store, understood how trauma works. Because when when you understand how it works, everything starts to make a lot of sense. Um, like when I was talking about the anger management thing, when when you see someone road raging and you understand trauma, you're much more likely to accurately assess the situation and, and then know what to do about it. Um, because if someone, you know, in the example of, of bumping someone in, in the car, what why they're, you know, why that guy was punching me is not because he was a douchebag in all likelihood, but because when I bumped his car, it freaked him out. 
and he was terrified. He felt extreme threat in a way that he felt when he was, when he was, you know, smaller and weaker. And when you understand that, you can say, you can help the person by saying, look, I'm, I'm sorry that I bumped your car. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a threat. You don't have to, you don't have to get big with me right now. I, I'm not a threat. I'm, everything's okay. You know, a police officer, I mean, think about how helpful it would be if all police officers understood trauma when they roll up on someone and the person seems to be reacting quite erratically, you know, the, the police officer who understands trauma can be like, oh, okay, this person looks like they might be having some kind of PTSD episode because it'll look like they're being defiant and it'll look like they're, they're being uncooperative because they are, but assuming that they have control over that can actually lead to things getting worse, like actually people getting shot, which I've seen videos like this where I'm like, oh, that person being arrested looks clearly like they're having a PTSD reaction. And it doesn't seem like anybody really understands that. Now, I don't know what to do about that because it's possible that police under a lot of circumstances just have to proceed um, regardless. But I'm not saying that uh, just because someone's being confrontational or disagreeable to a police officer that you're supposed to just let that go. But I don't know, just a little bit of knowledge about that. Okay, so patron Karen, you're asking about tips. Well, so I have tips for parents and, and teachers, uh, which are people essentially who have a lot of time with people and what I would and spouses for that matter. I mean, I, I think when we talk about trauma-informed care, we're often talking about children and teenagers, but this applies to everybody. This, you know, children and teenagers are not the only people who have been traumatized. So uh, this really applies to everybody. So tips for everyone dealing with people who are close to you are, uh, one, be attuned, meaning you need to notice other people's emotional states and then respond in a way that is good for those, for those people like naming the emotion when when you see someone that's that they seem distressed you you want to say something like it seems like you're in some distress right now is that right um you want to help them understand what's happening you you can also suggest emotional regulation techniques like oh it looks like you're really stressed out right now and the person's like yeah i'm very stressed out right now and you're like, well, when I'm stressed out, I like to relax all the muscles in my body and take a couple of deep breaths and kind of, you know, get myself centered again. So you can suggest things. And the last thing is to model emotional regulation skills. That's the really one of the best things you can do for people around you is to show them how to deal with emotions in a real, you know, real, real way. Um, especially if you're working with kids and with uh, students, if you're a teacher, is they look up to you and they do what you do. So you can really model that for them. Now, tips for everyone who are maybe dealing with people for very short amount of time, like a physician or um, I guess a teacher as well, or a social worker. Here are my tips. Number one, is assume everyone has been traumatized until proven otherwise. You know, I, I, I've adopted this point of view. I, I, also, I assume two things about everyone until proven otherwise. They've been traumatized and they have PTSD, 
and they have a personality disorder. Uh, when you assume that, you proceed with caution. It, it means that you, you might spend a little bit more time with people that they don't need it, but you, you're definitely making sure that you're not going to step on a landmine because with people with personality disorders and people with PTSD, you can step on landmines. So you have to just walk carefully. It's like, I guess the metaphor is like, assume every field has landmines until the, the minesweeper goes through there and says, either there is no landmines on the field or they've identified where the landmines are. So that takes time. You know, it takes a little bit of time to figure that out. But it's better than just walking on every field and then one out of every 10 fields you step on a landmine, right? Believe me, it's, it's a bad day in your profession when you, when you do that. So just assume that everyone has been traumatized until proven otherwise. Because there's no way to tell at first. You know, a lot of people will be like, well, you know, she didn't seem like she had PTSD. People with PTSD don't seem like anything. There, there's, there's no way you can just visually or briefly interact with someone and know that they have PTSD. There's just, there's just no way to know. Um, number two is pay attention to body language. When people are traumatized, they will give off a certain body language vibe. So you want to pay attention to that. Number three is ask for consent a lot in the beginning. Um, like in the example I did about the physician with the rape victim, we have, I, you know, I laid out a lot of consent. You know, do, do you want me to do this? Would you like to do that? So now with some people, they might not need that. They might be like, and after a while, you kind of get the sense or you've assessed and they actually don't have PTSD. And so you don't have to do that as much with that person. But with until you know, you just might have to do a lot of that. Uh, number four is don't assume that inaction from the person means consent. You know, so let's say, again, getting back to our physician, let's say the physician says, so I'd like you to disrobe. And when I, when I get back to the room, I'll uh, perform the examination. Physician leaves. Physician comes back in. The patient has disrobed, and the physician does the um, does the examination. And the physician walks away, going like, "Okay, it was a normal interaction." Well, it's possible that the individual, the patient, was in extreme terror and PTSD triggering the entire time, and they just went along because there's this thing that people learn to do when they're repeatedly traumatized is to freeze. You know, we have the fight or flight or freeze or appease. And many rape victims, particularly people who are abused growing up, they learn to freeze or appease. So just because someone is consenting or being nice doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going through something really horrible. Now, I know this really complicates things because this means someone could say, yes, I do want this to happen, when in reality, they don't. But it, again, it's in the body language and it's in the way people say things. So, for example, if you said something to this patient, you said, so I want you to disrobe, or let's say you asked a question, you say, so in order for me to figure out what's going on, I'm going to have to do a visual examination and... Uh, that means you're going to have to disrobe and I'm going to have to, you know, look at that. Um, is that okay? And let's say the patient has PTSD and the patient s says something like, sure. Okay. So the way I role played that, you know, sure. I'm hope, I hope I'm revealing, you know, or demonstrating how, how that 
you know, on paper is consent. But if you read the body language and the vocalization, you would say like, well, I don't know. It doesn't sound like an affirmative consent. Or the person's like, no problem. That's why I came here. You know, let's say they said that. You know, you're like, I'm going to need you to get a disrobe so I can look at it. The person's like, yep, no problem. That's why I came here. Then that that indication is much more likely meaning that the person isn't going to be triggered by or doesn't predict they're going to be triggered by this. So you have to pay attention to that. A lot of people with PTSD, they'll just say yes with a question mark or okay. And it's not, it's not actual consent. They just believe they've been triggered or they've been taught that they can't really assert themselves. And so you, you just have to be careful. Number five is always give people a way out. That's what I did when the role play with, with the physician and the patient is I, you know, the physician says to her, so if you don't want to do it today, you don't have to, you can go home and re and make a different appointment. So you're not trapping the person. You're always giving them a way that they can get out of it. That's, that's very easy and won't have any kind of punishments attached to it. And number six, when people say that they're scared, you need to really pay attention to that a lot because a lot of people with PTSD, they'll get their courage up to say something like, so, um, so, you know, this kind of freaks me out. Well, if you, if you're not aware of what that, you know, the tip of the iceberg that that's representing, then you'll just be like, oh, okay, well, you know, it'll be fine. In fact, I had this happen to me because I had PTSD around medical procedures for a while. Whenever I went to the physician, uh, it was my my physiology would freak out. My mind was fine. You know, I was like, I know everything's fine. Nothing bad is going to happen to me. But my body was not having it. And so I would go to some physicians and I would say, so just to let you know, I have some trauma around medical uh, procedures. I have some reactivity to it. And I get I get real, I freak out. And I might, I might panic or I might even faint. So, you know, if something happens... I need you to listen to me when it happens. Often it was like I would say to the physician, stop what you're doing. I, I, need, I need everyone to stop what they're doing because that, again, again, gave me a sense of control and would help with my anxiety. And with some physicians, they were like, oh, okay, uh, will do. And I, I could tell that they were really paying attention. Other physicians, I had this one physician say something like, oh, no, no, everything will be okay. You know, it, it, you won't be afraid. Everything's fine. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I just told you that I know myself and I know that this, this procedure is going to be terrifying for me. And you just told me, no, everything's going to be fine. Well, now I'm, now I'm worried even more because I can't even communicate with you effectively. So when people say, when you know if they finally reveal that there's some fear that they have even if you're like are you know like the next day they don't repeat that statement just assume that that's still there because that's a that's good trauma informed care in my in my opinion anyway so that is my short little thing on what i would recommend people do for trauma informed care let's talk about something else all right this next email is from an anonymous patron they write I always wondered why I wasn't getting better, even though I've been and seen more than one therapist since I was 10. I've been told by therapists that I wasn't doing the work. My family tells me that my therapist doesn't know what they're doing. 
until my new therapist told me something recently. He told me that I wasn't getting any better because I have a high emotional influence family, a high emotional influence family. I researched it, and from my understanding, it's when a client is getting better in therapy, but they relapse back to their mental illness due to a, due to a highly critical family. I thought it would be interesting to see your take on this and the advice you can give. I thought it's important for people out there to know this, because for years, I thought it was me not doing the work, or there was something wrong with me. So I'll talk about high emotional influence families in a second, but just as a caveat getting into this... I'll say that therapy takes a long time depending on the issue at hand. I worked, I've worked with clients for over 10 years. <clears throat> and if you looked at any particular year, you might not see a great deal of progress. But if you look at the progress over 15 years, then you absolutely see progress. So therapy for some issues takes a long time. Now, if you're working on something like a fear of heights, then you should expect to be able to be cured of that within five to 10 sessions. But if you're working on something like a personality disorder or a sense of self or attachment issues, then by the nature of the neurons and the way our brain works, it takes a long time to rewire the brain in a brand new way. So that's why it takes a long time. So, you know, and people will often say, like, it's very discouraging to hear, you know, people will say, because I'll tell people, you know, people will ask me, like, so I've been in therapy for six months, and I feel like I've learned some things, but I still feel like I'm falling into the same traps. I'm still in conflict with my spouse, I still lose my temper, or I still tend to isolate, or I, I still tend to be distorted in the way I see my spouse's behavior and we just get caught in the same behavioral loops and I don't I feel like I've been in therapy for six months and you know am I wasting my money and time and and what I'll say is well I'm glad you asked because it's a rational question and you, you should get you should ask your therapist you know is this worth my time and money um, but the second thing I'll say is that I've never been with someone who changed that fast it just takes too long. I wish people could change fast. I, I wish I could change fast. It. The other thing is, is sometimes it's not a matter of change, but just a matter of managing your issues. So sometimes the goal is unrealistic to think that your issues are just going to go away or your or your quote unquote. I don't know, anonymous patron. I don't know what mental illness you're suffering from, but there are mental illnesses, so to speak, in the DSM that are just not going to go away ever. Like if you're mildly depressed or moderately depressed, the expectation that you're going to be completely not depressed is actually not reasonable. Some medications can do that for you, but for, for most people who suffer from depression or anxiety, they, it just sort of, it, it, it's reduced drastically through therapy and or medication, but it's not. It's never fully gone. It's just rarely fully gone, and it often comes back. And that doesn't mean that your therapy isn't working. The way to look at it, I mean, it could mean that therapy isn't working. I'm not saying your therapists are actually helping you. I can't evaluate that from this angle. But it's it's also possible that your symptoms are are. So the way to think about it is this: is imagine if you had never been in therapy 
would it be better or worse or the same? If you're like, I'm pretty sure I'd be the same, then maybe therapy isn't working. But for a lot of people, they'll say, well, although I know I'm not better yet, I definitely know that it'd be worse off without therapy. Well, that tells you something. And I've seen this happen. When, you know, people will come to me at the age of 55 and I think, my God, if you'd only gone to a therapist when you were 30, when it was only like moderately bad, because by the time you're 55, it's really bad because people's issues tend to get worse over time. Their isolation gets worse. Their addiction gets worse. Their depression gets worse. Their anxiety gets worse. Their agoraphobia gets worse. Their personalities gets get worse. And so not all the time, of course, depending on their life situation, but It often can be. And so sometimes being in therapy is just maintaining the current level of pathology and staving off it getting worse. So this is a really hard thing to evaluate. So when people are, you know, looking at you, anonymous patron, uh, and your, your therapists are saying you're not, so just reading your email, you're saying your therapists are telling you you're not doing the work. And then your family is telling you your therapist doesn't know what they're doing. Well, what that kind of indicates to me is you have a lot of people barking at you. <laughs> your family is is barking at you and your therapists are also barking at you. And when I hear that, I just have to wonder if it's some sort of projective identification that's happening where you were barked at by your parents and then you internalize that. So now you have this internalized dyad of and you know an internalized voice of someone barking at you and then this the other side of that dyad is you feeling as though you are deserving of being barked at and so you have this dyad that's been reinforced through repetition inside your psyche and you will try to externalize that dyad because you're trying to work it out and so sometimes you might actually socialize through projective identification your therapist to actually bark at you in a way that your parents did. But it's not going to be in the same way because therapists won't be seduced to bark at you in the same way, but they'll bark at you in a way that a therapist would, which some therapists will give in to these impulses to say, well, the reason why you're not getting any better is because you're not doing the work. So, you know, obviously just on the short email, I can't tell that that's what's happening, but that that would be something to think about. But anyway, so getting... Getting to your question here of a high emotional influence family, I've never heard of the term before, but I can surmise what it means. Um, Another way of thinking about it, so, you know, just on its face, you say high emotional influence family. Well, it kind of sounds like an abusive family, uh, an invasive abusive family. And that absolutely can happen. You can have abuse, you know, if your parents are abusing, so... I don't know what your issues are and I don't know what your family situation is, but let's imagine a world in which your parents are basically emotionally abusing you and you go to therapy every week and you're trying to get better and then you go back into your family and they emotionally abuse you. Well, then, yeah, you're not going to get any better. That's just uh, if especially if the problem stems from you being barked at by your family. So that's one thing. But another way to think about this is through a systemic lens, which I'm uh, in love with as a concept, and it's our central theoretical model that we use in the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, which is which is where I've been teaching for the past 20, 23, two years. Um, so the thing here is that uh, the notion of systems theory is that we don't have individual minds 
this is something that is quite easy to fall into this way of thinking that I have my mind and you have your mind and they have their mind and uh, we're individuals, um, you know, but we're not individuals. And I'll get more into that in a second. We are products of our systems. We're not just influenced by our families. We're not just influenced by society. We are a part of those family systems. We're a part of society. We're both influenced by them and we influence them back. So it's particularly our families because they're they're smaller systems. So an analogy to this is that if, if I were to cut off my toe, would I point at my toe and say, that's me? No one would do that, right? No one would go, okay, or a, or a fingernail or something. You would never say, that is me. You'd say, that's a part of me, right? And, in the, you know, it, it's okay. What if I cut off my whole leg? Would I be like, that is me? Most people would be like, no, that's, that's, that's something that was attached to me before. But weren't you inside your toe in the past? Weren't you inside your leg? Wasn't your leg a definite part of you b- before? So none of us would look at our toe and think that that's us. In order to understand the toe, you have to understand the whole me. In order to understand my elbow, you have to understand the whole me. You have to understand my elbow and my brain and my eyes and my hair and my torso. And, you know, you have to understand everything. In the same way, uh, the, the th- you know, um, the things, you know, we are not, we cannot be understood unless you understand the systems that we're in. You can't understand me unless you understand the family system that I'm in or the social system that I'm in, you know, the close, the relationships that I'm a part of and the society that I'm a part of. My my political beliefs, for example, are highly reflective of the system in which I ha- I'm embedded I my 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 song preferences, my food preferences, my sexuality, that the meaning of my life, what I've decided to be the meaning of my life. These things did not emerge out of me alone. They emerged out of me in existence within a system. Another way to think about this is I speak English, right? Well, English didn't emerge from me. I wasn't born with English. I didn't develop the English language. By myself, I developed my language clearly in response to the people around me. This is a very easy thing to understand in terms of systems theory, is that none of us believe that our language just popped out of us. We, you, know, you, you see kids slowly through trial and error and learning and interacting, they will slowly hone in on particular words and then grammar and then syntax, and, and they but it's it's a system it's them interacting with the people around them and those infants have a small influence on that system as well people can add new words for example or when they choose to use a particular word in a particular context at the age of 4 the rest of the family might actually start using that word for example my little brother um he used to carry around these satin things with him and we I, I, at some point we started calling them his softies <laughs> instead of like a teddy bear. He had these softies. And I, I wonder if my little brother actually might've even invented that word. I don't know. So that's how we are both a part of the system and we influence it. So all of us understand that language comes from that, but 
somehow when it comes to our um, mental illnesses or our belief systems, we tend to think, well, no, those are mine. I developed those myself. And I'm here to tell you, no, you did not. Um, you, you, you're a part of it. You're definitely a part of the system. You're not a complete victim or some sort of pawn in someone else's world, but you're definitely not your own. You, you don't, you don't, you don't, there are other hands on the, on the steering wheel. Um, you definitely have a hand on the steering wheel, but there are other hands. And so uh, that's a tough thing to, that's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of Americans because we like to think that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're these awesome individual heroes riding off into the sunset. I mean, the thing, just, just to go off that, that old metaphor of like the hero in American film is the cowboy riding off into the sunset by himself. And if you think about it, my God, what a lonely existence. Human beings need attachment. And that guy riding off into the sunset is going to drink himself in, into oblivion or he's going to shoot up heroin and, and or he's going to become extremely angry and jaded and upset if he doesn't turn around and find someone to ride off into the sunset with. And those two people are probably going to drive each other crazy unless they're part of a larger societal system, a larger family system. So this idea that we can ride off into the sunset by ourselves is counter to human existence. It's counter to biology. It's counter to research. And it never works out for people. I mean, just think about like the Unabomber and this kind of thing. It's, it's, it's not a happy ending. So for the vast majority of people. So for example, just to put this onto earth for a second. I had a client years ago who came to me with high anxiety. So he sits down. He's like, I have a lot of anxiety. I, I have panic attacks sometimes. I'm, I'm worried a lot. So if I look at it through an individualistic point of view, if I'm just looking at the toe, then I would be like, okay, well, let's look at your biology. Maybe you need a medication. Let's also look, look at your cognitions. You know, what sort of thoughts are running through your head that might be contributing or causing the anxiety that you're experiencing? Now, these two things, biology and cognition, are important ideas. They're not, I'm not going to discount them at all. They're very helpful things to do when you're working with people with anxiety. But let's, let's not just look at the toe. Let's look at the whole thing here. So the other thing I learned when I actually expanded out, zoomed out a little bit, and started asking him about his childhood and about his family and about his social life and the culture he's in, and I learned that he's about to go to college he grew up in boarding schools to some extent. There was a lot of pressure on him to get good grades and to be good at sports. He was upper class, which had a certain level of pressure. But the key is, is that I found out that his family was loving but very distant. There were a lot of kids in the family, and he was, although he felt very loved, he felt his parents loved him, he just didn't feel like they really had a lot of time to pay attention to him. And so, as we know from the attachment deep dive, that can cause problems. Just because you didn't go, you know, you, you can be attachment injured massively without ever being abused or mistreated in any obvious way. So if I went off the individualistic point of view, I would have worked with him as, on his cognitions and I would have recommended that he seek out medication, anti-anxiety, benzodiazepine, this kind of thing. That wouldn't have been bad, but it would have missed what I believe to be the key uh, cause of his anxiety, which is his attachment injuries and his, the general loneliness that he had in his life. And so I worked with him on educating him on how attachment 
can cause anxiety and how, and it really, you know, he really took to it. He was just like, oh my God, I really feel like that's true. And so helping the client understand himself and in terms of his own attachment, that took a while. But the second thing I did is I did family therapy and I, I established uh, the idea of attachment and the idea, you know, I was talking to the parents and I'm like, I know you're very loving and I know you're very kind people, but I'm guessing you were raised by parents who were a little standoffish. And they're like, yeah, a little bit. And I'm like, you know, it's a common problem in upper class families a lot of times. So I was like, okay, so we're, we're going to have to shift this around for everybody. And I believe that your son's anxiety comes from that style of parenting. So it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but I, I, but I think you'll really like this. You'll, we'll be working on how to, how to establish secure relationships with, with everybody between the parents and the marriage, you know, between the kids and the parents and the family loved it. They, they really took to it because there's nothing, I don't know, there's nothing to dislike. It's like, you're, you're asking a family, would you like to be closer? And they're like, yeah. And you know, deep down, the parents really did want to be closer to their kids, but they they just had a hard time noticing that the kids needed it. And they also just didn't really know what to do. They knew how to do a number of different things in parenting very well, but it was hard for them to to know how to really, really pay attention to their kids. And so it just involved a lot of contact between the parents and the kids. And it wasn't all fun and games. I mean, there were issues. There were there was hurt and anger that had to be worked through as well. But through that, guess what happened? No more anxiety. And I never really had to work on his cognitions through cognitive behavioral therapy. And I he never needed any medication. So what a wonderful thing to see people through systemic lenses. Now, it's a pain in the ass to actually drag the parents into therapy and, and the siblings for that matter. It's scary. It's a hassle, uh, but what a wonderful thing. And I, I don't want to treat, you know, someone's toe. I want to treat the whole system. I want to I look at the whole thing. Now, with some people, I might find that, uh, you know, family therapy isn't necessary or um, intervening in a systemic way. I mean, the other thing is, is like I wouldn't have to necessarily drag in the parents. I could have, which the parents were glad to come. I mean, they, they really took to it when you sell it the right way. But... I could have just had I could have just worked with the young man himself and worked on and coached him on how he can actually develop secure relationships with his parents um, outside of therapy that I've worked I've worked that's my primary mode actually with most people is to do that. So when we look at the you know the term high emotional influence families we're we're really talking about all families all families are high influence. So getting back to what your therapist said anonymous patron I'm not really sure what your therapist means when he's saying you're in a high emotional influence family and that's why your mental illness keeps relapsing. But I'm guessing what your therapist means is that it's hard for you to develop a sense of self in their midst and or it's hard for you to actually move forward in your life when you're constantly being criticized by your family. And, you know, these kinds of things, the inability to, to establish a sense of self, you know, and being criticized a lot can cause a lot of symptoms, a lot of mental illness, quote unquote, symptoms like depression, anxiety, addiction, um, loneliness, isolation, just general chaos, resentment, all those kinds of things. So 
here's the thing. A lot of, a lot of therapists, a lot of people, will, when they look at these kinds of scenarios and they think this is the hypothesis that, they're, that they like, that they're going with, they're, you know, they're like, okay, you have this mental condition and at least one of the factors is because you have this high emotional influence family. Well, it, it's, it stands to reason where it's just like, well, we, well, we need to separate you from your family. And I'm here to tell you that almost never works because it's impossible to separate people from their families. Now you can you can eliminate contact. You know you can, for example, this anonymous patron. You could just stop talking to your parents, and that's a way of cutting yourself off from them. But that doesn't end the fusion with them. You're still enmeshed with them emotionally because you haven't resolved anything. So one, you can resolve things without talking to your parents, but. A, what a wonderful opportunity it is for you and therapy to actually resolve things with your parents to their faces. Um, so now that's hard work and it's scary, but it's effective. I'm here to tell you, I work with people a lot on this. A lot of the people come to me talking about things that relate to this issue in one way or another, where they have to rework their relationship with their parents, even if they're like 55 years old. Um, so, a lot of this work has to do with first knowing what you want. So with you, Anonymous Patron, I wonder, you know, when your parents are criticizing you, it's like, well, what do you want to say back? Or, you know, how do you think they're right or wrong? You know, these kinds of questions of like, okay, what do I think? You know, what's my evaluation of this? And then you assert it in some fair way. You don't tell them to fuck off necessarily. But you're just like, you know what? I don't appreciate when you say that to me, and I'm not going to respond to that. Or I know that what you're saying right now is is not rational or fair to me, and I'm just – I don't agree with what you're saying. And therapy can help you develop the notions of selfhood in you. And also you can – I've worked with a lot of people on like, well, how do you talk to your parents in that way? Because, you know, the first impulse that a lot of people have is like, well, I'm going to let my parents have it. And although it's fine, it's not the end of the world to do that. It's usually not the most therapeutic thing. Um, and then once you do assert yourself, there's always a backlash within the family because family systems operate on a homeostasis, meaning they like things to be fairly consistent, not because they're evil, but because people just don't like things. They just don't like change. No one likes change. Systems don't like change. Now, some people be like, oh, my God, I love change. And I'm like, no, you don't. You like some change. If I changed everything about your life every day, you would go crazy. If I changed where you lived, the accent, your job, your clothes, your class, your race, your sexual orientation, like it would drive you crazy, right? What you want, you know, some people are like, well, I guess I just like changes because I feel like I'm in a rut. Okay, totally makes sense. But believe me, you like stability. Everyone wants some things to stay the same. I mean, just look at people's lives. I mean, people can change the way they dress overnight if they wanted to, and people rarely do, right? Uh, people could change the things they do after work, but they rarely do. People can change um, lots of different things, and they and people just rarely do because people like stability. Anyway, so systems like stability too. And when you start to act in a brand new way by asserting yourself and pushing back, but in a fair way, there's going to be homeostatic mechanisms that are going to kick in to push you back into the original spot. And this might be what your 
therapist is talking about. It's high emotional influence family. But like I said, all, all systems are like this. They're, every family system is like this. Now, some people will be like, well, you know, I, I, don't really, I don't really have a lot of contact with, with my family, with my parents and siblings. Well, that's a certain kind of homeostasis, right? Imagine if you were to call them every day, there would be homeostatic mechanisms to, to make you stop. You know, they'd be like, why are you calling so often? Or they just ignore your phone calls or something would happen in all likelihood because systems like to stay the same. Anyway, so that's what I'll say about that. And that brings us to the end of another chapter of me answering your emails. And I am now on two page. I only have 13 pages left of emails. All right. Well, let's, you know, uh, sign off for today and tomorrow I'll read some more emails. This is fun. Cleaning out the closet. It's spring cleaning. Please take care of yourself and clean your closet because you deserve it. (laughs) 